my sister opened up a frozen yogurt shop. So there I was, me with my UCLA mechanical engineering degree, but all I was doing was working a cash register and swirling yogurt. And I would say that was the time when I really hit rock bottom. I felt like what I had learned from the past about working hard and how much that would pay off, it was not paying off in that moment. I had nothing to show for my expensive degree or all the hours and the stress I put in. From Lux Monday, you're listening to Faith Collides. It's a show about industry leaders and the stories behind how faith plays into life at work. I'm Grace Huang, and today my special guest is John Chu. John and I actually went to college together, and I'm excited for you to hear his story. John started his career right in the middle of the global financial crisis. He never would have imagined getting laid off right out of college and then working at a frozen yogurt shop before landing a job at McKinsey & Company, a management consulting firm. And that paved the way for him to work at Blizzard Entertainment in the gaming industry that's been thriving through this pandemic. Before we get into how he got there, here's a little bit of how John grew up. His parents came to the United States in the late 1970s seeking better opportunities, and they deeply ingrained it in John to get good grades. This is how John remembers it. My parents immigrated here from Taiwan. They really believed in providing for us. My mom was an accountant, and my dad was a real estate agent, and neither of them had completed a full undergraduate degree. I wouldn't say that we were poor. We weren't really well off. My mom would tell me things like, she doesn't know if we'll have enough money to keep the house. But oftentimes, I would worry about money. One thing that my parents believed in, which many Taiwanese parents believed in, was working hard and doing well in school. And they believed that if you did that, you would be successful in life. At first, I tried to get good grades, uh, not because I had this long-term vision for how it would pay off in my life, but simply because I didn't want to be punished. Well, this was back when I was in grade school. Every time I would get a report card, they would be terrible grades, and my mom would just ground me for a week. And what was a bad grade? It was pretty bad. I, I wouldn't do any of my homework. So I was basically just getting zeros on everything. And then one day, I said to myself, wow, if I just did my homework, this wouldn't happen anymore. It's not hard to get a good grade in third grade. You just have to do the assignment. <laughs> so from then on, I started to work hard at school and this transferred through the rest of the elementary school to junior high to high school. And if I'm really honest with myself, I wasn't trying to get good grades at some point necessarily because I saw how it would all play out into a good future, though that's what my parents told me. At some point, it was also a, an obsessive kind of compulsion. It was a sense of pride. I worked really, really hard and I was extremely stressed out, in some ways unhappy, because I had this obsessive need to get good grades. When you start striving for all these things in life, you do start feeling empty. So I'm wondering for you at that time, where was faith? So my family does not come from a faith-based background. I actually had two uncles who I was quite close with who were both agnostic and they had very strong reasons why they 
believe that you couldn't prove that God was real, or or at least Christianity and the other religions didn't prove it for them. So to me, I was actually quite opposed to Christianity and other religions because I felt like there was no proof that these things were true. But that's not how John feels today. His views about God were challenged and ultimately changed in an unexpected way. Well, it started off as just a way to skip swim practice. And swim practice is uh, really grueling. It's two and a half hours after school every day, just doing laps over and over again. And my friend told me, hey, there's this church small group on Fridays that the coach doesn't want to interfere with, you know, religious meetings. So if you tell them you're going to the small group, you can skip out on school practice. So that's, that's actually how I ended up at church. So what happened when you went to that first meeting? One of the most unusual things when you first go to church is all the singing. Maybe some people are raising their hands or closing their eyes and you're just thinking, uh, what is this? This is so strange and unusual. You would think for someone like me, I would say, oh, well, they answered all my questions. They were able to prove to me that God was true. And intellectually, I came to a point where I believed in God. But, but that's actually not what happened. As time went on, what happened instead was... God really worked on my heart and he worked on the way that I looked at life and I looked at relationships with other people. And through that, he was able to actually reach me and not through my mind first. One of the mindsets I had before I became a Christian, it sounds a bit silly now, is my goal when it came to relationship with women was that I was going to date as many women as I could through my life and then marry late. The small group and at church, one of the things that we talked a lot about was relationship and how much we should cherish the person that God has planned for us. So that's something that that really touched my heart, really changed my mind. And it started to make me realize a way to live life. It can be better, it can be fulfilling, it can be joyful. One thing that was very important to me when I was in high school was finding ways to spread God's word to other people. And some of our friends did come to church to with us, and some of our friends did come Christians and are still Christians to this day. John's life changed in a lot of ways after he made the decision to follow Jesus. He says that he started praying for his future wife, caring more about others, and even thinking differently about where he'd go for college. And certainly when I was thinking about going to UCLA and Berkeley, and I saw that I had some other partners that could be there with me for my church at UCLA, that did help to influence my decision to go there. But not everything had changed for John. He still really cared about grades and not in a healthy way. I was obsessive about grades <laughs> to, a, to a fault. Again, I was obsessive about getting straight A's. It was beyond reason. I would stay up super late working on things. I would be super stressed out. And in part, again, it was because some part of me knew this was good for my future, but a big part of me said, this is how I identified myself. And this is something that made me proud. What was like your GPA? I think it was 3.98. Cause I got like one or two A minuses. And I actually had more A pluses than anything else. I was super obsessive. So you had this mentality, you need to go to school, you need to get straight A's, not even straight A's, straight A pluses by the time you graduated. Was it clear to you what you want to do? I really liked math and science. One of my favorite courses was physics. 
And I said to myself, I'd much rather work on things like that than write essays. So I ended up majoring in engineering. Engineering was presented as a pretty surefire course. It was a field that needed a lot of jobs and paid pretty well. John ended up majoring in engineering, and he set out to get a job as a mechanical engineer. But doing an internship actually made him doubtful about his career path. He did an internship at Northrop Grumman, which is a large defense contractor. They make fighter jets and rockets and all kinds of military technology. I appreciated that the things that they worked on was problem solving, included math and analytics, but I just wasn't that interested in the applications of engineering. Like, why do you need to make this piece of metal so it doesn't bend? Actually, it's pretty funny. I remember asking the people in the immediate team around me. These guys are, are not like right out of college. They've been there some maybe a decade, some maybe two decades. And I would ask them, hey, if you could go back in time, what would you do? Would you take this job again? And, you know, one of them said, oh, I would have become a doctor. And one of them said something else. And none of them, no one said that they would be in the same field again. So that was a quite a, a wake up call for me. At the same time, did you realize you were interested in something else? I knew that I wanted to work on problem solving. I knew I wanted to work on something that involves some sort of analytical thinking, some sort of math. In many ways, uh, the kind of thinking that you apply to business or finance is like that. So I told myself I wanted to try something different. And I ended up taking a job at an investment management firm. This was in the fall of 2008 when I took a new job at an investment management firm. So it was a great, great time for me. John's being sarcastic because 2008 was when both the U.S. stock market and housing market crashed. People were not paying back their loans and banks were going under. Basically, the whole global economy entered a recession. And that was right at the time when John started a job in an industry that was affected by all of it. I remember when I used to go into work that every morning the company would send out an email and this email would go to all employees and it stated our AUM, right, which is our assets under management. And it would be however many billions of dollars. This is a great email because usually that number is going up over time. And it was a sense of pride showed our progress. AUM was also proportional to our revenue because we charge a percentage of our portfolio as, as a fee, right? So as I joined uh, over the first two months that I was there, I watched as that AUM number went down and down and down every day. At that moment, no one knew it was the global financial crisis. Did you sense we're going down or did you feel that type of anxiety in the air? I think fresh out of college, I don't really know how companies make decisions. I got a job and, and the company seemed really nice. So I just thought everything would be fine. And it just seemed like, oh, this is like an interesting time. I hate to say this, but it's, it's almost like sometimes when you hear something bad that happens somewhere else in the world and you just feel like, oh, it doesn't affect me, but oh, like it's happening over there. It didn't really hit me until the day that they sent out an email suddenly asking everybody who had joined the company within the last few months to gather together in a conference room. They basically gave us all cardboard boxes, said, hey, fortunately this thing has happened and you all need to just go back to your desk, pack up your things and, and you're done. John's days at the investment management firm were cut shorter than he ever expected. He found himself without a job and in such a scurry to figure out what's next. 
It was really difficult. You have to imagine that I had just come out of a situation where I was working very hard in high school, very hard in college. I was successful during those times. So I thought to myself, oh, this is no big deal. I'll just strap my belt and just work hard like I always did. And I'm going to get out of this. So what I actually ended up doing was even though I had no office to go into and had no coworkers to see, I would wake up each morning, I would put on my slacks, I would put on my dress shirt, and put on my tie, and just sit at the table next to my bed. And for hours and hours every day, I would just apply to job after job. And I remember I was extremely dedicated to it. I would write cover letters when the job listing didn't ask for cover letters. You know how you write a cover letter and then you just change a few words in it when you send it to someone yeah, yeah. else? You copy and paste. I didn't do that. I wrote a custom cover letter for every job, even if they did not ask for a cover letter. And I just thought to myself, you know, I'm, I'm a hard worker. I'm going to put on my tie every day and I'm going to work through this. Something's going to work. I started doing that for days and then I did it for a few weeks and then soon that started to turn into a couple months but when you get to a point in your life where you feel like you're working really hard but you're not getting any results and you have nothing to show for it you're unemployed it gets so hard to continue to feel like a valuable person and it's really really hard after that amount of time to keep your focus and to keep your rhythm all the way up how did you start rationalizing? Okay, what are my options if I'm not hearing back from anyone and no one's like giving me a response or I'm just getting rejections after rejections? How did you work that out in your mind to decide what you're going to do as option B? So uh, coincidentally, at the same time, my sister uh, had also opened up a frozen yogurt shop. This is when it was booming and with nothing else to do, and me paying rent living up in the Bay Area, I decided to move back to SoCal and work in a yogurt shop. I just got paid no minimum wage or whatever it was that she paid me. So there I was, me with my UCLA mechanical engineering degree, but all I was doing was working a cash register and swirling yogurt. And I would say that was the time when I really hit rock bottom. I felt like what I had learned from the past about working hard and how much that would pay off, it was not paying off in that moment. I had nothing to show for my expensive degree or all the hours and the stress I put in. I imagine that in today's crisis with COVID, that there are many people who are really hurting out there right now. Maybe you're the class of 2020 and you're graduating from undergrad. Well, it's, it's a really tough time for those people. And maybe some people even had jobs secured already and now they're being revoked. Or it might be someone who had worked for a long time and maybe you were at your job for over a decade. And now because of the situation, you're laid off or you're put on a permanent a leave status and you're not being paid. For those people, I think the sting of this time is just as harsh as what I and many other people went through back in 2008. At that time, you have to look at yourself beyond your title, beyond how much you're getting paid. And so you were able to get through that. So tell me after working at the yoga shop, what was your game plan? Yeah, so something we skipped over earlier, but was a saving grace for me 
was that I actually already had a plan B in the works. When I was in my final year at UCLA, I applied and got into Stanford's mechanical engineering graduate program around the same time that I did the internship and I decided that I didn't want to be an engineer anymore. So when I ended up taking the job in investment management, I actually deferred my entrance into Stanford for a year. And what I said to myself was, I'm going to spend a year to explore and see if I like something else before I commit back to engineering. And so like many other people at the time who couldn't find a job, I did the same thing. I ended up going back to school. A year went by after John lost his job and him trying to make ends meet working at his sister's frozen yogurt shop, searching for other full-time jobs with no luck. John felt that getting a master's degree at Stanford would put him in a better position to secure a job in an incredibly difficult economic time. But he wasn't too excited about racking up more college debt or getting a master's in something he was no longer interested in. Let's take a break. And when we return, we'll find out how John managed to use his engineering background to earn a degree and find a career field that involved both engineering and business. Businesses all around the world are feeling the effects of this pandemic. Some have been hurt by it more than others. Peter Fry, the executive director of End Poverty, sees its devastating effects in places we might not see. Especially micro businesses, especially in the developing world where you don't have the buffer and the luxury that, that we have in the States. But also there's not necessarily the infrastructure around in order for the governments to actually provide those stimulus packages in order to help businesses stay afloat. M Poverty is a faith-based nonprofit headquartered in D.C. with a 35-year track record of bringing small business loans and skills training to poor entrepreneurs all around the world. And unfortunately, their global network of micro-entrepreneurs have been hard hit by this pandemic in places like Bangladesh, Guatemala, and Cameroon. In Cameroon, actually, we're serving internally displaced people, so, which has been going on with a lot of domestic fighting for the past three to four years. And so you can imagine on top of the civil war, you have a pandemic. And so we're serving domestic refugees who are homeless, living in the churches, trying to provide for five or 10 children. The Good Samaritan Fund is designed to actually give them $50 to purchase chickens or a tailoring sewing machine to be able to start generating an income and start providing for their families. The need is way out beyond what we can provide. But we're creating this Good Samaritan Fund, which is like a business resuscitation fund. This Good Samaritans Fund is their response to help 2,600 of their most vulnerable micro-entrepreneurs. And we want to let you know you can also be part of it if you're financially able. Because 50 bucks might get you a pair of shoes, but it can also fund someone's business needs to survive during this unprecedented time. To find out more, check out mpoverty.org and click on their COVID-19 relief tab. Thanks for caring. Welcome back. In 2009, John Chu went back to school after a period of unemployment. Like he'd done at UCLA, John managed to get straight A's at Stanford. But this time, he was much more focused on securing a job than getting good grades. John became interested in management consulting. That involves researching and collecting data to help inform executives on how to make business decisions. At a job fair, John met recruiters from McKinsey & Company. 
but he says trying to get an entry-level job there was actually more difficult than getting into Stanford. Like literally hundreds of people will apply to McKinsey. I was applying for the, the entry level. I was competing against Stanford undergrads and anyone who had a master's that was not a MBA. And you know how many people they picked out of all the work they did, right? They did the info session. They did the career session. They did all the coaching. They did the small group sessions. They do all that. They recruited like one person or two. All the work just for like one person. So the odds were already stacked against John. And then he totally bombed one of the final interviews, or so he thought. I did my final round interviews. I thought they went really poorly. That day I went back home. I was like, well, I guess that's done for me. And then they called me just like a few hours after I had finished my interviews. And I said, oh man, they, they, they couldn't have even waited a few days to consider. Like they already know they're going to reject me. But when I picked up the phone, it was one of the partners who had interviewed me and they told me that I got the job. And I was so beside myself, I was so happy because I thought I had done so poorly and to get into a place like McKinsey, I always felt was out of reach for someone like me. That's because McKinsey is one of the best management consulting firms in the world, which means that they advise famous household names, blue chip companies on how to compete and grow in an ever-changing and competitive global environment. And joining this firm meant John got some of the best on-the-job training so that he could be prepared to advise executives during engagements, which were projects that he and his team members would work on behalf of the client. John says it was exhilarating for him to have this kind of impact. It was quite a turnaround for me from the cash register to McKinsey. It was quite a difference. And actually, this type of work was almost perfect for his personality. The thing that gives you a really good feeling is that there's a clear path for it. There are many jobs out there where you would think to yourself, no matter how hard I work, I'll never be able to become like the VP or whatever. But at McKinsey, everyone's the same. Uh, the most senior partner was a business analyst at some point. So they look at everyone and they say, oh yeah, you could totally do it. So for someone like you who really likes that structure, thrived through it throughout high school and college, like McKinsey is somewhere where you would probably really thrive and, and also feel comfortable in, in a career path. Yeah, it's very different than, say, the path of entrepreneurship, where it's very vague. You don't really know what you're going to do. You like craft you and see if something works. Whereas like in this case, it's like, this is the two-year plan. You do these two, and then you do these two, and then you become this, and you make a million dollars. Like that's, that's what it is, right? So you wouldn't want to be an entrepreneur? No, I wouldn't. Entrepreneur is like the antithesis of my personality. Can you imagine how indecisive I am? Imagine if I was an entrepreneur. Because your job is to present all the options and weigh the risks and let the entrepreneur or the business executive make that decision, make that call. I probably make a really good number two. I probably don't make a very good number one. Like, what do you mean by that? I'm very good as the right-hand guy to the person who's in charge because I'll work super hard. I'll think about things really critically, but don't ask me to make the decision. So John thrived at McKinsey's competitive performance management system. And even in their up and out policy where they have consultants go elsewhere to work for two years before coming back. And John did move to Google for two years to get some hands-on experience before going back to McKinsey as an engagement manager. 
And these hours were tough. After three more years of working at McKinsey, John realized his work had put a strain on his faith and family. By the way, John was married at this point and had a daughter. John had dated his wife, Karen, when they were in the engineering program at UCLA. For all of its merits, McKinsey is a very difficult place to, to work. It's very stressful. You're asked to prove yourself day in and day out. It's an environment where you're traveling all the time to your client side to work. You're working very long hours every day. What's long hours? If I'm on an engagement, a normal week, you know, from the time I wake up to midnight, that would be like, okay. If you like finish that 8 p.m., that would be so good. <laughs> that would be amazing. There's one engagement I remember very distinctly. I was on the phone with a client until 3 a.m. every night, and we did this for weeks. And I got very little sleep, right? and that's just how it is. And at that time, you're married to your college sweetheart, Karen. So how was that like in your relationship? It was very difficult. We went on our honeymoon, and then we took a week off, and we started work. So basically, from the beginning of our married life, we were on this crazy treadmill where I would get on a plane every Monday morning and fly off to somewhere, work for the whole weekend, and I would see her on the weekend. So it was very difficult. As I think back on that time, personal life, it's all a blur. Right? I don't even remember what personal life was because basically there was none. I want to know where your faith was at this time. I think at a certain point in my life, I had to ask myself what was important to me. And I looked at the lifestyle of the partners around me and I could see that they were working all the time. They were working more than even I was and they were traveling all over the place all the time. And I realized that my happiness in life was not all about my status as my job, how much money I make, how prestigious it was. It was one of the first times that I very distinctly said, I've had enough and I'm not gonna reach for the thing that's more prestigious, that's harder. Instead, I'm gonna focus on what's gonna make me more happy in life. And that was having a balanced life, having a relationship with my wife and a relationship with my daughter and be able to focus more on God. By 2017, John had thought long and hard about a career change to get a better work-life balance. The problem was he was often too busy at McKinsey to even look for a new job. But then his wife, Karen, who worked at Google, got a job transfer to Los Angeles, where John and Karen's families are from. That was a push John needed to step out in faith, lead the demanding work environment, and try something new. John says he never imagined getting a corporate strategy role in an industry that he was actually interested in, gaming. More specifically, at Blizzard Entertainment, a video game developer that created games like World of Warcraft, Diablo, and Overwatch. I grew up playing Blizzard games. As a regular gamer, I remember I would hear announcements or see things that video game companies would choose to do with their video games. And often my mind would turn on the business side of my mind, right? Where I'd be like, oh, I wonder why they made that decision. I guess they must have looked at this and this and figured out that that was the right choice to do. I often thought to myself, well, wouldn't it be cool to work for one of these companies and help them make those decisions? <laughs> I never I never thought that I would actually work in video games, uh, but when I found out that there were these job opportunities at Blizzard and it was a team of former consultants that were looking to hire, it was just a great opportunity for me to put two and two together. 
and entering as a director of strategy and finance. John's been able to do similar work as an in-house management consultant, but also get the time to play video games during lunch breaks, drop his kids off at daycare, get involved in church, and do some cool things there to grow the business that, unfortunately, he's not able to share in detail. By the time COVID hit, John says he felt working in this industry has not just kept his job safe, but may have done some meaningful work for people who are staying at home. I think video games, we often think about the addictive behaviors that they have, but they're also ways that people can do all kinds of good things for one another. Video games is a place where people can be the kind of person that they want, where they can form relationships, where they can have communities with other people. And many of these social bonds and communities and the ability for people to have some agency in their life is actually really, really beneficial to them. So I think video games can be a great force for good. And many of our franchises spouse positive thinking and positive thoughts. I work on the Overwatch franchise and that is about a bright and hopeful future where people are good to one another. Video games right now during the coronavirus is a great way for people to have community during this time when they're separated. In 2020, the year where a lot of companies and businesses are in a very uncertain place. How are things going at Blizzard? The coronavirus is a terrible, terrible thing. Of course, all of us wish that it didn't happen. It also means that a lot of people have more time to play video games because they're at home. We are very happy that people get to enjoy our games and use it as a way to leave some of the stress during this really stressful time. So the video game industry is doing very well. How do you feel being in this industry? I feel extremely grateful. There are hardships that come for people like me and like my wife uh, who works at Google. You know, we're working at home. We have our kids at home because their schools are closed. and. Whenever I start to think about those things, I think, wait a minute, there's, there's a bunch of people right now who have lost their job. And there are a bunch of people who are sick and people who have family members or, or people they know that are victims of the coronavirus. At those times, I think to myself, oh, wow, I, I really am fortunate and God has blessed me a lot. I should be grateful for the things that I have in the situation that I'm in. Sometimes God may allow you to go through a hard time to better prepare yourself for the next downturn, or just so that you can realize how blessed you are. That's where John is today in his career. Those moments he described as hitting rock bottom taught him something valuable about who he was when he graduated and had no more grades to pursue, no job, nothing to show for his hard work. You or someone you know might be in a similar position. And here's what John has to say about that. I think what's so hard about this period of time is we identify ourselves and take so much pride in what we do as our jobs. I feel this so much these days as well, where whenever I meet someone new, one of the first questions I ask the person and one of the first questions I expect to be asked is, what do I do for a living? And in a lot of ways, I miss a big part of who a person is if I don't know where they work. And so, to not have a job, to not have something to show for it. Or I guess I did have a job, I worked at a yogurt shop, but it was not very prestigious, right? It was something that really ate at you and made you feel like you weren't worth something. I think one thing that really got me out of this mindset is remembering who I am in Christ. 
God says that we are valuable not because of the things that we accomplish in life. In fact, if we were just measured by the things that we accomplish in life, we would all be found to be wanting and to be sinner. But God says your worth is in Him. And it doesn't matter if you're CEO of a Fortune 100 company, or if you're working the cash register, or if you're unemployed and sitting in your PJs and just trying to figure out what you're supposed to do in your day. He says that he views you all equally because you're a child of God. I hope you can take those words to heart, coming from someone who knows what it feels like to have no value based on his status in the workplace. And even today, as John continues to climb the corporate ladder and have career success, he knows that his identity doesn't come from what he does. That's not how God views us. And the same is true for you too. Hope you have a blessed week at work or even in the season of job searching. This is Grace Huang, and we hope our stories can revive your work week. Thanks for listening. Faith Collides is hosted and produced by me. This episode edited by Joshua Batson, audio mixing by Joshua Huang and Martin Garcia.